there's nothing you can say or do that would be a one shot wonder bad for that could us. Be so taken yeah. wrong, of course. For sure. This is the show that we're gonna have to go back. <laughs> something <laughs> terrible will happen. <laughs> All right. Don't end up with like fire ants on set or something. Do the thing where you go like me 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 me. Do you have to gargle? I don't, but I do have something. You, use a pitch pipe to get started. <clears throat> yes. Okay. Okay. Ready? Yep. The words have gotten all distorted. But what they meant to say was not reported. Before the torches come to town, we're gonna burn this for down. Welcome back, Fortitude. I am J.W. Wilson, and my co-host Britton Payne to my right. Um, BP. This week has been very newsworthy. I don't know if you ever heard of a guy named Gary Patterson. I believe we had him on. The show one we time. did. We oh yes, indeed. We have Back, some uh, old audio <laughs> mm-hmm. that we can uh, put out there again for folks. We to recorded listen to. on this. Oh, nice, nice. See that, John? The Is that an eight track? Yeah, <laughs> it's close to that. No, not even. It's just the predecessor single. to eight track. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, Gary Patterson has been unceremoniously uh, relieved of duties over at TCU. A lot of people are unhappy. A lot of people, well, not a lot of people. Some people are uh, positively for that move. Um, I happen to be close to the guy, and I played for him. I'm disappointed in the, in that news, but whether it matters or not, the powers that be let him go. So TCU's now in a in a, uh, a head coach search, and it's kind of like star search, right? You got I would say some, star uh, search. Yeah, in fact, celebrities in there. The names as we sit today um, are Kellen Moore from the Cowboys, Chris Peterson from Washington, Billy Napier from La Tech, Sonny Dykes, our friend over at SMU. And some guy named Deion Sanders at Jacksonville State. <laughs> the <laughs> Reverend Deion <laughs> Sanders. Right? Um, anyway, that's happening. Uh, the guys, uh, you know, he's been known to show up at work, do some things. But whatever the case may be, he's out at TCU. So we uh, have a huge bit of respect for Gary. 23 years over there. Took the school from relative obscurity to a national brand. He deserves a lot of people's thanks. And I think people are, are grateful for what he did. But it sounds like a new new chapter in TCU's life. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We got to know him well. Like It was, it was really good uh, for somebody who's kind of the non-athlete, as you often point out, uh, for me to uh, get to know and kind of listen to him. And, and he does talk about kind of his legacy and what he really wanted. So tune into that for sure. Speaking of legacies, did you hear that voice speaking in the mic just a second ago? I did. And I do think that that is a leg. I mean, a, what is the word... Uh, not a cuisine legacy. What would you call it? Um, culinary. Yes. Culinary, culinary legacy. <laughs> yes. You. Yeah. I'm here all day. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much, John. Well, anyway, the guy sitting across the table from us, we, we would call you a legacy, John, is the greatness of John Bonnell. So thank you very much for joining us today, John. Oh, thanks for thank having you, John. me. I appreciate him. We, you are a, you're a lifelong Fort Worth guy. You've traveled a little bit, but you're born and raised in Fort Worth, correct? Yes, sir. Fourth generation. Where did you attend school? Uh, well, I went to Vanderbilt University Before for undergrad. I uh, went to Country Day here. I went Country to Arlington Day. Heights. Very actually good. graduated from a boarding school up in, in the Northeast and then uh, Vanderbilt. And then I was a teacher for a couple of years. I taught middle school and high school math and science for about two and a half years and then went to culinary school. Okay. That's, that's the normal track, right? You get your, your bachelor's degree and then you go look for an associate's program somewhere, right? Yeah. So was the middle school teaching the what sent you to the culinary school? I've heard that about teaching in middle school. <laughs> no, I really I really enjoyed the teaching and coaching and stuff with the kids. I I couldn't handle being right out of college, no wingman and like three months off in the summer. I didn't I didn't oh, have yeah. enough going on. So yeah. 
What'd you um, do in those summers? Did you stay up there in the Northeast and just hang out or would you go? No, I was teaching here uh, in Dallas, actually. Oh, okay. But I uh, didn't, didn't have a lot of a wingmen around. You know, you used, you used to school and then college, you get you just got yeah. people everywhere and stuff to do. And suddenly I was forced into adulthood, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, graduation is like a punishment. Yeah. They're kicking you out of heaven when you leave college. And I just wasn't ready for, for that career at the time. Uh, so I went to the New England Culinary Institute up in Vermont, spent some time in New Orleans, kind of chefed around until I felt like I knew enough and started started restauranting. Does it work that way? Like almost like a residency kind of thing where you, you go to school and then you you kind of sit in at these restaurants? Uh, you know, that's a, that's a great question. Um, a lot of times it does work that way. If you decide you want to open a restaurant and that's your, and that's your gig, uh, culinary school is like a, an accelerator experience is required. School mm-hmm. is kind of a bonus, but some of the best chefs in the country, like Thomas Keller, French Laundry, never went to culinary school. Experience you have to have. So if you just think you're going to go to school and a graduation ceremony, they hand you the keys to your new bistro. That's not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> Did you choose the East back, back East because you had gone to boarding school like you liked it or it's because of the culinary? No, I like- chose, I chose the specific culinary program itself. I, okay. I don't do that well with that kind of cold. I while mean, while yeah. you're in a NECI, it's an acronym, yeah, right? Necky. Necky, you did a six-month uh, internship with the place on the screen. It's a little restaurant called Mr. B's, correct? That's right. That's six the Brennan's family down in the French Quarter in New Orleans. Tell us mm. about that experience because we all, if the, all of us in New Orleans uh, favor, we, we've all been to this place. It's a fantastic place. How did you come <laughs> to do this and what was it like? The place is amazing. So in, in culinary school, they said in your first year, you're going to be here six months. You're going to learn a whole lot of basics. We'll get you started. And then you need to go off and put 700 hours into a kitchen. And if your chef signs off on your logbook and that you've, you know, got your experience, then you come back for your second year and they teach you a lot more advanced stuff. A lot of people didn't even come back for their second year. They just go out and start working and stick Mm -hmm. around. But they had a file, a file cabinet just filled with restaurants from all over the country, a few international and said, find a place, send in your, uh, your job application and set up your own externship. And uh, I started looking and I said, you know, New Orleans to me, every time I've been, I can't. I can't stop thinking about the food. The scene is so different. They have stuff on their menus down there commonly that everybody else doesn't even know how to pronounce. Yeah. I think the food's amazing. There's so many great restaurants, just concentrated. So I just grabbed that file and started flipping through and said, New Orleans, here we go. And uh, ended up on this one because the Brennans are absolutely the best family I've ever seen at high volume fine dining. And that is very difficult to combine. Mm-hmm. How many seats in that place? Um, or meals. I'm not sure about the total average? seats. I will say, like on New Year's Day, one of our busiest days, I think we served eleven to twelve hundred people. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It it was New Year's in New Orleans, and the and the the sugar bowls there. I mean, everything was going on at once. So yeah. From lunch to dinner, it was as fast and furious as you could go. I was on lunch shift that day and just started. My my batch of crab cakes was forty pounds of crab meat. Start wow. start picking it through for shells, chop up the peppers in there. By the time I start filling orders, before I knew it, there's a guy tapping me on the shoulder. He's like, hey, I'm the dinner guy. I'm here to relieve you. I'm like, great. You got 46 tickets up here. Good luck. Oh, my gosh. So what time do you start that prep? Uh, 5.30 or 6 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Fair to say your your restaurant tour now, your restaurant uh, cuisine is influenced a lot by your time at Mr. B's? Absolutely. Some of those flavors just never never leave you. Um, the, the, the whole Creole idea, a, a really 
intense blend of flavors. It's not about just adding heat to something. I mean, cayenne pepper is used a lot, but it's not just, you know, make it hot and you got Cajun. Creole really means a blend of lots of different cuisines, lots of flavors and complexity that, that sticks with you for life. Does it bring the sweet in too? Like, is there, sure. and, and with that heat, is it, is it, there's different kinds of heat, right? That are like upfront heat, but then there's some that are, you're eating mm-hmm. it and then you'd, it's like, this isn't hot. And then you're like, wow, there is some heat on sure, that. And, that. and that's the kind of stuff we always talk about with, with balance in a dish. I mean, it, is it, is there something hot? Is there something sweet? Is there something acidic? Is there something salty? And when, when something's out of balance, you notice it. And that's, that's half of what we do as chefs is, all right, I made something. What does it need? What's it, what's out of balance here? So how much is learned in school of that? And how much is in the externship? Man, that's that's a tough one. Externship really is. It's it's kind of like part of school, but you're you're on your own to go and do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same chef who was there when I when I was at Mr. B's in 1997 and 98 is still the executive chef. She is amazing. They are timeless. When you walk in, you still it still feels the same. It still looks the same. It's got that that classic look that only, only places like New Orleans can do. Did you think about not going back? No, I wanted to go back. Second year, the classes are way more advanced. And mm-hmm. like I was saying, it really is experience is required. You got to work kitchens and you got to just be in the grind and, and have tickets flying and learn how to create dishes, you know, in a limited time frame. But culinary school is the greatest accelerator of that. So the school that I went to ran like nine different restaurants mm-hmm. and you work every spot in every one of those kitchens, from a fine dining restaurant to a bar and grill, to a, a bakery, a pastry shop. We ran um, Vermont College cafeteria service. So, mm-hmm. so many different aspects of the food service industry. And you are in the weeds, absolutely grinding it out every day for two years. And it's incredible experience. One of the things you flew by a second ago when you were a teacher, I know that was a small piece of your life, but you taught math and science, correct? That's right. Mostly biology, a little, a little, um, IP at introductory, uh, physical. Did you did, just real quickly, but why did you, why did that period end in your life? Was that not what you figured you were meant to do? You knew that something better was in store for you? I, I love doing it, but I, I couldn't handle the lifestyle at the time. Just okay. being the single guy, just me and the dog. And I, I just, I wasn't ready for it. And, and the number of vacations, the amount of time off, which I would kill for now, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Married and kids. But I, uh, I just wasn't ready to be in that pattern of life, I guess, at, uh, yeah. at age 24, 25. How many years married to Melinda now? 20 years. 20 years. Congratulations. Thank you. So after you finished school, you, you came back to Fort Worth yep. uh, in 2001, I believe. This place happened. That's right. We opened Bonnell's 20 years ago, October 12th. That was right after September 11th. Very nice. What wow. uh, what was there before? I'm trying to think. So that building was a Pizza Hut Express, just oh. a pickup only, and ha- half of it was a, a State Farm office with cubicles. And Tom Price was in there. He's married to Betsy Price. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so the the restaurant business gets open. Are, are you terrified? Are you ready for this? What's it like to open the doors the first day? All the above. It's it's everything possible. It's a, a massive financial risk. I mean. I've, you're down to that last, okay, we need some working capital, you know, at last bit of money just to get the doors open. I got people paid. I got product in the house. We got a massive wine cellar. Then you open the doors and hope people show up and buy most of it. And, yeah. you, and you don't have that much control over it. And we always say in the restaurant business, you are never promised one single customer. Mm-hmm. I mean, and they can make a reservation and they can no show it. Absolutely. Tomorrow, the whole thing could go away. What was the first day like? The first day was a Friday night. It was mostly friends and family. We didn't want to overload the place. I think we had about 80 people on the reservation list, and we had a massive lightning storm. The power went out twice. Oh, <laughs> excellent. And that location, <laughs> like you were there before 
all of that development took place, right? Yeah, I mean, that absolutely. was pre-Lowe's and, and all those other restaurants that went in and pre-Southwest Parkway uh, Lo- or Chisholm Trail. Lowe's was there. It was before the Chisholm Trail, and that's mm-hmm. been huge for us. But uh, they did all that kind of construction while we were there. They, they would drill, like, pipelines under the freeway. And there, there were some lunch periods that you could feel that... <laughs> in the dining room, you, you feel the rumble. We went through a lot of construction, a lot of times where we didn't have as many customers based on it being hard to get there. Yeah. But uh, the first year was fantastic. You're always going to get press when you open. Everybody's going to come try a place once for sure. Mm. Then the second and third year were really, really difficult. Um, was wine part of your life at this point? Yeah, I started taking some wine classes in culinary school. And up until that point, I thought I was a, I thought I was a real beer nerd. I had learned how to brew beer at home and was teaching all the other students how to make beer and Turns out the wine program is actually way more important to the business side of a restaurant than I ever realized. And the first few classes that we started taking in culinary school just opened my eyes to how much a part of the business this could be. And I uh, just kept studying and, and kept working on it ever since. Is that a margin thing? Is it because you can, are there higher margins on like the sale? I mean, just in a survival aspect of a restaurant or is it all about the pairing and making sure like the experience of it. It's absolutely both. You, you got to be able to make money on wine. You, you can't pay somebody to drink it, but um, yeah. the money you can make on wine is an easier formula. It doesn't go bad on you. Some of it actually gets more expensive if you sit on it longer. It, there's not a perishability that food has, and it doesn't take nearly as much labor to produce it. Mm-hmm. Think about that steak. There's, there's five or six different people involved in receiving it, storing it, seasoning it, cooking it, trimming it. Somebody could have just stolen one and eaten it, yeah. Or if you didn't sell all your steaks that night, you, you're going to throw one away. Maybe the, the cook on the grill and the bartender work out a deal. You give me a few beers, I'll give you a couple steaks. Yeah. Those are all very difficult, you know, parts of the formula. A bottle of wine sits in an old, in, an old bank vault. That, mm-hmm. that building was a savings and loan to begin with. Mm-hmm. And when somebody orders it, you open it and you pour it and you present it properly and the money's there. So Speaking it's, a, of stealing, it's, it's an easy formula. <laughs> I, I once heard from a cop, um, <laughs> the local cop here, that... Did your smoker get uh, borrowed for a short period of time from there at that location? Right when the pandemic started and everybody was sitting at home on Facebook doing nothing. Yeah. Sure enough, somebody robs us in the middle of the night and they stole a $10,000 smoker. And what would the weight of that be? I was at a boat place yesterday. Just That's 350 thinking, pounds. Yeah. It's on, it's on a trailer though, heavy. correct? I can show you the video of exactly who stole it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you want to go visit him, he's uh, he's doing about 10 to 12 years. But that That's was... A, for that instance or for uh, other stuff? That was added on to some other stuff. You yeah. dropped the hammer on that guy for far on the grill. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... You, you could watch the video and it was it was comical. He and his and his girlfriend, I guess. There was a male and a female, and they 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 pulled up in the handicap spot right there at the front of the restaurant at about midnight and just sat there smoking cigarettes for about ten minutes and just looked around and found like, all right. And they walked into the back of the restaurant and they, and they took a bunch of stuff they could grab quickly, like some igloo coolers and an axe that we use on the wood pile and yeah. just a handful of things. And they left and 20 minutes later, they came back and sat there again and we're like, all right, we're getting that smoker. And they, they almost dropped it. I swear, if that thing had fallen, as they're, as they're trying to pick it up and put it in the back of the truck bed, if it had fallen, it would have like crushed her legs. Oh my they, gosh. The, the thing was teetering and we were like, oh, 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 oh. And sure enough, they got away with it. And when I showed the, the video and the license plate and stuff, I mean- the Facebook crowd went nuts. Like I know exactly who I knew. Th- those guys were, were ripping off Seven uh, Eleven just a couple days ago. Go talk yeah. to that manager. Yeah. And I, that manager is like, yeah, they live right over here. I remember and, this. Yeah. And within four days, the Fort Worth police said, uh, "Are you guys? Uh, are, are you at the restaurant right now? We got a delivery for you." And they, they brought it back. Yeah. So I know <laughs> a police officer who went and just he knew to the right guys to go to where to go, and the guy was like. 
Yeah. Okay. okay. I'll tell you. Hang on. Let me make a call. And like, like it was kind of like this well-known heist, I guess. Yeah, and, you and, know. I mean, everybody was online at the time, and I mean, I saw like thirty-seven thousand shares in a couple of days. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we're all sitting at home. Let's yeah. see if we can solve the case of the smoker. <laughs> yeah, that's a great Jeez. story. Apparently, the the guy who had it eventually called the police and said, "Hey, I uh." That, that smoker thing that uh, everybody's looking for, if, if I can tell you where it is, I, am, am I like, okay? Yeah. Am I, I going to be fine? Yeah. <laughs> and they, they uh, ended up, uh, he, he led them directly to it. And when I got it back, we hooked it up. It was still full of wood. It was in perfect condition, ready to go. No kidding. Yep. Excellent. That is oh, a great, great story. So Bon Els has done so well. Uh, one of the things that's really neat for us is in 2004, you, were awarded, you won the Award of Excellence from Wine Spectator and you were Zagat rated. I think you've been consistently doing those things ever since, correct? We have. We've That's, been very fortunate. That is there. impressive. And then in 2016, obviously, much further down the road, you won the Double Glass Award of Excellence. So your your wine prowess, is is it started off at a, in a good place, but it's gotten progressively better. I yeah, that, that was say. a big move when Wine Spectator says, okay, you're not getting a regular award. Now we're, now we're giving you the double glass. They, they recognize that you, you put a lot more into your wine program. And I, I started teaching uh, wine classes at TCU about, about 10, 15 years ago also. And at the Culinary School of Fort Worth, occasionally, so the wine program has has grown by leaps and bounds, and we've got a pretty fun collection over there. So that was your initiative. I mean, do you is that your initiative, or you hire some folks who are really helpful in that department? No, I, I teach all the classes there in wine. Yeah, what's the best bottle of wine you ever had? Wow, single best bottle I've ever had. Um, the very first Senequanon that I ever had was uh, the inaugural. No, no, the first one I had was called. Uh, oh gosh. Can't believe you're asking me this. It'll, it'll come to me in about five minutes and I'll jump back on it. What okay. was the special occasion that required this bottle of wine or did it just happen? I started looking at Robert Parker's site and I said, you know, what does he ever give a hundred points to? Cause that just rarely happens uh, just for the love of it. That was the name of the first one I had. And so I was like, all right, why does this one winemaker keep getting a hundred pointers every other year? And so I ordered one for Melinda for Christmas and I was like, here's a wine we've never had. It's a cult one. So you got to find it in an auction somewhere. You know, you got to be on the list. This is that special stuff that everybody knows is a cult. In the movie Iron Man, Tony Stark has a case under his desk. Oh, you know? wow. So I was like, all right, I'm going to get one. And uh, anyway, we we opened it on, on Christmas, and I was like, all right, this stuff is special. And I uh, made contact with the winery and managed to get on the list. So we actually carry a lot of those now, but the first time I ever tasted one of those, I was like, all right, this there is a massive difference between just a wine and this stuff. That's quite a present for sure. Right? It's a good Christmas. No doubt about it. Um, So the the... In, in the restaurant, real quick before we move, it, move forward in your life, uh, what's, the, what's the best thing you like making and what's the worst thing you like making, if you can distinct between when, the two? In the restaurant or just in general? In, in Bonnell's specific. Yeah, in the restaurant, I would say I, I'm an appetizer guy. I like, I like to have two or three dishes instead of just commit to one big plate. So um, our, our three favorite appetizers that are never going away, um, the fried legs of quail, mm-hmm. um, little elk tacos, and our dish we call Oysters Texas Feller. It's a play on Rockefeller, but it's a fried oyster with hollandaise sauce, a little spinach and tasso underneath. That's actually on the menu at Waters and Bonnell's. That's one of the only crossovers. Have they been there from the beginning? Yeah, 20 years. That's fantastic. What's your favorite restaurant to eat at? Non-Bonnell family. Uh, in Fort Worth? Yeah. Um, we love going over to you know our friends' places like LRB, Fixture. Mm-hmm. It's fun to go have a, have a drink at Riata and grab a, grab a couple appetizers at the bar while we're walking around. We, we like all the other independent restaurants. Yeah. Tributary is a big one for us. What about outside of Fort Worth? Like best in the world, like your what you try to mimic your dining experience in your place. What what said to you? This is what I want to create. 
Man, that's that's a tough one. I, we go to New Orleans every year. I'm in one of the crews of Mardi Gras, so yeah. every year we go, and I and I I'm always looking at a new dish, a new flavor, a new ingredient, and just every everything that's going on down there is, is fun. Bayona's down there, Susan Spicer's place is always very inspirational. August has always been amazing. Uh, GW Fins has some very cool seafood items going. Cool. I think the best place I've ever been is a Thomas Keller restaurant called Per Se up in New York, and mm-hmm. I mean you you're paying through the nose. It's amazing and. The, the level of service and what they're doing, it takes 20 people to make some of their dishes. I mean, it's incredible how much they put into a plate, but you know, 23, 24 courses. Yeah. It's a, it's an entire theatrical presentation along with the meal. And it's, it's one of those you, you save up and you do, you do something special. It's not, you know, every, every Thursday we're heading over kind right, of a place. Right. So in 2009, you, you had an idea for a new, new concept called Buffalo Brothers. There you go. Over by TCUA, right? That's right. Um, you subsequently, 10 years later, 2019, a couple of years ago, you opened one downtown. But I must tell you, um, my office th- every Thursday is going to, to um, Buffalo <laughs> Brothers for the wings. You're welcome for putting that smell into your office. It just drifts it's, right on over there yeah. every time, right? But you, there was a lot of research, right, with the wings. Um, yeah. Like I heard you went to Buffalo. Like well, people talk about this. Here's the deal. The other, my business partner, Chef Ed McOwen, we, we've been working together forever. And and when I wanted to do Bonnell's, I was like, hey, I, it's going to be hard to do this by myself. Will you do it with me? And he's like, absolutely. I'll, let's. So we've been partners on on all of the restaurants so far. And after a while, Ed said, you know, I'm from Buffalo, New York, and there's not a single decent Buffalo wing in this town. If anybody ever did it, we'd make a killing. And I I just kept, that was stuck in the back of my head forever. I kept thinking, what do you mean there's not a single decent wing? He's like, let me just show you a basic, simple batch of Buffalo wings, how we do these at home the right way. I was like, yeah, that's, that's a damn good wing. Yeah. And sure enough, uh, found the right real estate deal right there in the middle of TCU on university. And I thought, you know, pizza, wings, and subs, and a big beer list on the college campus. How can this fail? Oh yeah. So it's been 14 years. Actually, birthday is today. Happy birthday, Congratulations. Yeah. original Buffalo Bones. Well, one more thing on the wings. So many of the restaurants, it's a flattened boneless wing, but yours is a more ball-like there's, structure. Can you explain well, just How do you difference? debone your wings? Right, yes. so there's, there's, two, there's two parts to a bone-in wing. Okay. A bone-in wing, there's a drum and a flat. And okay. We, could, we can talk all day like chili, whether it has beans or not. People can disagree on what's the better wing. They're all wrong. It's the flat. The flat's better than the, than the drum. Everybody knows this. And should one but, eat it where I've seen guys uh, put the whole thing in their mouth and just whoosh, if pull out just bone if you've got that kind of talent i'm impressed um <laughs> it's funny i'm i did a youtube one time when i said you're, you're eating them wrong and if you just push down on one side flip it over push down you get the meat to fall off of both bones pretty fast but uh when it comes to boneless wings those aren't wings okay it's, it's breast so you take chicken breast cut it to the right sizes flour it and fry it okay it's very very time consuming and difficult to take the meat off of a wing and nobody does that so so wednesday Afternoon, evening, you're prepping for Thursday's onslaught, I'm assuming. There's a lot of work going into those wings. Oh, absolutely. Wing and Wednesday is huge. Game days are always huge. It, you know, we don't have a lot of really slow days at Buffalo Bros. We're open seven days a week, but we will prep up a tremendous amount extra when we know it's coming. Wing and Wednesday is always big, and anytime there's a big sporting event, that's that's what we live for. How many yeah. wings do you serve on a given day? Have you ever put numbers to that? Like a Super Bowl day, we could go through 20,000. 20,000 wings. Holy <laughs> cow. That's amazing. If we could step back one more time, the, the, on the on the uh, projector, oh, we have a picture of your of you holding a, a, is a Nebuchadnezzar. What are we uh, holding there? That one was an Imperial. That Imperial. was a, a a gift from Bob Egelhoff. That's uh there's two cases of wine in that one bottle. 
unbelievable. Jeepers. Yeah. And then next to that, your, your, your private label. Can we talk about that for a sec? Is this sure. the size you open at Christmas just for just uh, for you and your wife? Just no, that to was, that enjoy was my, the afternoon? Yeah, just a little sipper. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, for my 40th birthday when the restaurant turned 10. Mr. Egelhoff sent that over as a big old gift. He and my wine distributor, um, Ivan Thornton, said we wanted to get you something special. So we opened it up that night for our big party. Oh, that's great. How was it? Oh, it's amazing. Egelhoff is the man. And that's why I asked him, uh, hey, if I were going to make a Bonnell signature cab, uh, any chance you got some juice laying around we could play with and maybe make one? And he said, well, I, I, we can't talk about wine over the phone. Fly your butt out here and let's start tasting wines and see if we can't figure something out. So, so are you instrumental in the mixing and the bl blending of the grapes and, and your private label? It, the final blending is, is the part that only the winemakers are good at. So a lot of people can do the mechanics of making wine and the fermentation, put it in barrels, but you got all these barrels at the end and every one of them tastes different. It's like the master distiller for bourbon. Mm -hmm. Who's going to put that together and who's going to make it right and consistent. And, uh, he said, you know, this, this year I've got, I've got some orphan barrels. I got plenty of juice to work with. So come on out. We'll start tasting and see what we like. And how you piece those back together is an absolute art. And only a few guys are qualified. It took me two hours to get it right with him. He's like, I could do it in about 15, 20 minutes. Who's, is that the executive chef in the kitchen? That, that position that you're talking about for the wine deal? That's is the winemaker. Is that yep. what the executive chef does at the kitchen is they put all those pieces yep. together? That's a very good analogy. Yep. Okay. Do you sell... Mm much of your Bonnell's private versus other, other bottles that you carry. Yeah, we sell quite a bit of it since we have it by the glass hall. So we usually make about 120 cases a year. Is that one of your more popular sales as you far bet. as wine? Yeah, it is. It's all uh, St. Helena right in the heart of Napa. It It's one of the best values for a very big, heavy, intense. It, it's the kind of wine that makes Napa famous. And very we've nice. got a pretty good price point on that. So. And then the next slide is you with one of your friends, the fish. <laughs> yeah. Or it's just one of your employees. Yeah, the um, fish pictures. Oh, man. Yeah. How do, how, do, how do you find your seafood, John? Oh, that's a great question. Seafood is a completely the different River game. Isn't, uh, yeah, wash with seafood these days. Yeah, we're not getting a lot of uh, a lot of mud bugs out of the Trinity and serving them. The, uh, the the fish game is so different because, like, I I can talk to my meat guy every day, and maybe the price has changed, but a steak is a steak. You're still getting ribeyes and tenderloins and strips, or maybe some you know odd cuts. But the fish guy has a different story every couple of hours. The fish game is completely determined by wind, weather, season, all that kind of stuff. So I'm on the phone with the fish guy like two or three times a week, and uh, it's always, all right, what, what, what's biting, Captain? And, oh, I got, I got the Lynn brothers uh, out of Florida. You love them. They are heading back. They'll make FedEx cutoff time today. They, they went out overnight. They got 400 pounds of red snapper, 200 mm. pounds of black grouper, and a couple of cobia. If you want one, let me know because this boat's going to be sold by the time they hit dock. And that's the kind of phone call that happens all the time. It's a yeah. blast. But I'm looking for fish that I can get from shore to door in under 24 hours. Wow. I don't, I don't want to buy it out of the inventory from an auction because it may have been caught somewhere, flown to an auction, traded to someone else, flown to an inventory. I, I like that fish from a small, like two-day two day kind of trip, Captain, yeah. and shore to door in under 24. So it's funny, the, the fish captions, I don't even remember what year I started that, but that became this really fun Facebook game where I, I put up a picture, you know, holding a fish and people just started making funny comments. And I'm yeah. like, all right, you know what? Let's engage everybody a little bit more here. And I'd make a funny face with them or pose it and say, best comment by the end of today gets a free bottle of wine. They start putting those up on Facebook and it yeah. became like the most fun game ever. What were some of the best comments or one? <laughs> oh man, most of, the, most of the ones that I would say were the funniest, I probably shouldn't say <laughs> on the air. <laughs> well, I There's did make the stuff. comment about it, be like an employee. And I wanted to ask you, 
I mean, how how challenging has it been? They've said that the restaurant business is the one that's getting hit the hardest with employees. And how do you keep your employees incentivized? And you got a whole group of folks who presume it just seems they don't want to work. So how do you manage that? That's that's a lot of questions at once. I will say 2020 hit us like a ton of bricks and nobody saw it coming. You know, in, in, in February, we were all joking about the, oh, the coronavirus is going to be like the SARS and the swine flu. And if you ever ate at Poncho's, you're probably immune to it and all that kind of stuff. But then March hit and for two weeks, sales literally just disappeared. Restaurants were going to go out of business before they got shut down because we all lost over 90% of our sales. Everybody just quit. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the reservations called. You'd have a weekend with 120 on the books on Saturday night and only four people would show up. And I mean, the staff's looking around like, what? you know, what's going on? Is this really that big a deal? And all of our caterings for the entire year called and canceled within one week. It was over mm-hmm. $500,000 wow. in contracted caterings, but I, I can't keep somebody's deposit on yeah. that. And so yeah. not only were we losing all of our money, we were given deposits back and then they closed us down. And I, I, it's one of the most difficult experiences. I didn't, I didn't know if it was going to be a viable industry for the future. That's, that's why I wrote this book about the entire year, what it was like from inside the restaurants. And then when we finally did reopen, you had all the bells and whistles and everybody wanted to start fighting with each other from the protests that were happening to the mask mandates or the requirements for social distancing and who was in charge of that. And I mean, it's just been a, you know, one fight after another that we didn't mean to find ourselves in, but suddenly we were the officiators of, of, you know, who can come in the restaurant, where you can sit, when you have to wear a mask. And now that we're on the other side of it, we are as busy as we could be, which is great. I mean, restaurants are, are just flush with customers but it's harder to find staff than it's ever been. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, it's still not an easy picture. Um, well, you were kind of the head guy in charge on some of that, you know, like they, and so did you, did something hit you where it's like, you know what guys, if we don't get together and make some rules ourselves, somebody's <laughs> going to make some rules for us and we may not like them. Yeah. The, the way it kind of happened, right. When, when, when it looked like, you know, the world was coming to an end, they canceled the NBA season. They canceled South by Southwest. And mm-hmm. we started saying, all right, this, this is really bad. Um, we kind of scheduled a meeting. It was supposed to be a, a fundraiser, a clay shoot for the food and wine festival and all the chefs were going to get together. And anyway, they, I said, Hey guys, do y'all want to, and obviously we had to cancel our shoot, but do y'all want to still meet and just talk stuff out? Cause obviously a lot's going on and everybody, well, maybe I said, Betsy Price said she'd come and uh, the mayor's going to come talk to us. We all showed up. So I don't know, 12, 12, 15 restaurants, all kind of sitting around a room is the first time we ever spaced our chairs out and said the word social, socially distant. And mm-hmm. she said, look, I don't want to shut y'all down. This was March 16th on a Monday and said, I, I don't want to shut y'all down. I have no intent on doing that. And one of the other restaurant owners held his phone up and said, Dallas just shut down all the bars and restaurants. Mm-hmm. So at that meeting, we all talked about, you know, well, obviously stuff's going to happen. And she said, I need y'all to designate a point person because I'm not going to be able to answer phones and texts like I like to. There's going to be a lot happening. Designate one point person. When I have information, I can take questions that way and I can give answers that way. And I end up getting voluntold to do that one. So, well, they we, said uh, you're the one that kicked her husband out of that office to open it. your restaurant. So you're the guy and they never forget it. <laughs> one of the things you're, you've been really good at for a long time is social media and using it for, for good. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> one of the things you did during the pandemic is what we're showing on the screen. Now you created a to go order, uh, 
business. I mean, you you already did that before. I think at some level, maybe I mean, just we, normal we have, stuff. But we, we've done to go food, and we've done you know meals to go for Thanksgiving, but we had never done anything on a scale like this. So and, you orchestrated this, and there's a picture of you, and, and there's other pictures online of cars yeah. to the into the distance lined up to pick up food. How, this did this save you guys? Is that fair? And and how many meals are we talking on a daily basis? It really did save us. Um, we sat down that, that week when we got shut down on Wednesday, and I sat down with the handful of people that we had left. I, I fired 235 employees. We, went, we got all the way down to 31 people total over four restaurants. And there were only six of us at Bonnell's, and I sat down with everybody, and I said, hey, the bar's open. Grab a drink. Let's sit around and figure out, can we, can we stay in business? If so, how? What are we going to do? We don't have anybody left. Four people cooking and two managers? That, that's it? That's not much. But you can't open the door, so we can't afford the labor to stay on. And I said, all right, after we all talked about every possibility, like, well, we could still try to do our food to go and take it out to the parking lot. I said, we only, we only have enough people to answer the phone and take orders, much less fill these orders. I mean, our, our menu is too complex. Our stuff is, this is not even what the city needs right now. Mm-hmm. And our final consensus was, you know, we need to cook the highest volume of food, for the lowest possible price and feed the most people out of this, out of this operation as we can. The city needs it. And why don't we just go with $40 for a family four pack, no choices. I'll get on Facebook. There's enough people seeing it. I'll get on Facebook and I'll tell them every day, Hey, here's what we got tonight. Yeah. Show up at four o'clock and we'll just start handing meal. We're putting meals in the trunks or backseat of cars. So they're mm-hmm. totally contact free. And we've got a little credit card machine where they could just crack their window and slide a credit card and mm-hmm. you know, trying to be as safe as we can and feed as many as we can. And the first, the, the first week that it started was just overwhelmed. We were feeding six or 700 people a day. That's great. You still continue to do this today? Yeah, still doing it today, about two to 250 a day, yeah. That's incredible. So um, moving along, John, your books. One of the books at the bottom right in the screen is Carry Out, Carry On. It, it, it's not even a recipe book. It's a, it's a book about your experience with all this you just outlined a little bit of. But uh we haven't even touched on Waters. Waters opened in 2013 between Buffalo Brothers 1 and Buffalo Brothers, Buffalo Brothers 2, excuse me. But the books have been wildly successful. The first one uh, te- is Texas Fine Cuisine, the first one you did. Yep. So how did these how did these ideas come to you? You, just, you knew you had something special. You want to share it with the world, do a book, and yeah, then it was um, so successful you made more. Fine Texas Cuisine was our first one, and that's, that's the hardest thing is can I actually write a book? Do I have enough material? Is this something people want? And as I started organizing it, I thought, yeah, absolutely, we've got enough stuff, and uh, worked with a publishing agent. And uh, we found a publisher who said we would love to take on this project. And that one is in its sixth printing. It's been out quite a while and still doing well. The only complaints we got on that one were, you know, some of the stuff in there is pretty hard. <laughs> it's, there's some fancy stuff. This is more of a fine mm-hmm. dining cookbook. So the second book, Texas Favorites, is more of a, this is a Texas cuisine for everybody. Yeah. Some tailgating ideas, um, some ideas for, for people who like to hunt and fish, some wild game stuff, how to throw a great dinner party, some Tex-Mex basics. And then Waters, when we opened the seafood restaurant, so many people are terrified to cook fish. It's, yeah. it's like a, a phobia. And I thought, you know, if, if we want to do a book that people really need, Waters has been very well received because we do tons and tons of different types of recipes in there. And the chapters are like, this This is how you do things that are going to be like raw, mm-hmm. you know, ceviche and, and oysters on the half shell, different sauces. And then this is for if you want to saute something. If you're trying to grill, this whole chapter's on that. This is fried. That one's been great. And uh, the last book, man, as the, as the year kept progressing, 
you know, starting March 2020, I kept thinking, there is so much stuff that has happened and it's only been how long? Yeah. And I, I just kept kind of journaling and, and, and writing everything down. And as I became the, the, the one sending out information to all the other restaurant owners, I think that email list is like 160 now, but I, I ended up kind of being the liaison between the mayor's office and the governor's mm-hmm. office or Senator Cornyn's office. And I, so I, I got, I kind of went back through all the different communications I had and was able to piece the year together and not just the, the COVID stuff, but then the protests and, you know, all the, the new Facebook fights that started. And I thought, I want to get this down while I still remember everything. And I want to be able to tell my kids the entire story and the truth because my kids are 10 and 14 and they obviously knew what was happening, but you know, you shelter your kids. Yeah. And there's a lot of, a lot of the business stuff I didn't, I didn't let them be a part of. I didn't let them know what's happening. I mean, there there were times that I thought we, we, we may just be financially sunk here and I guess I'll be looking for another job. And those are kind of some big big, huge, heavy decisions that I, I wasn't sleeping a lot. I was, you know, constantly just researching on the couch and sometimes the kids would find you. And one of my kids came in at, you know, three or four in the morning and said, what, what are you doing awake? And I thought, what are you doing awake? Mm. I'm trying to figure out if we can survive this or not. Yeah. But I wanted to write the book to make sure that I could just chronicle everything. And I had a hard time trying to figure out when to stop it. I could still be writing chapters now. Right. Mm-hmm. I finally, when the governor said, we are lifting all restrictions. We're done. I said, oh, perfect. That's, that's a period at the end. And we'll, we'll call this book. Was there any class at that new England culinary Institute that even broached anything like this? Oh yeah. We had pandemic 101, 102. Oh, no, no, we had zero. <laughs> so I was like, I, serious? That, that was pretty formal. Well played. Well yeah. played. Yeah. Hey, that, that was one of those things that nobody had an expert to turn to. I mean, they've never shut down all the restaurants in the country. Yeah. Could you, I could not have imagined, I mean, two years ago, if somebody said, by the way, something's going to happen where there will not be a single waiter, a single bartender, wine steward, hostess in the entire country. There just won't be a single one. That job is going to be erased. I would have said, you are absolutely insane. What is it? A, a robot's going to take over? I mean, there's no way you could have predicted the, the sequence of events that happened here. Mm-hmm. Now coming out of it, I've heard that there's like crazy food shortages in places or you can't get them delivered. So what's the number one item? Is it chicken wing? I've heard this. Yeah. There, there is a shortage on chicken wings. Yeah. Supply chain just goes up and down all the time and you never know what it's going to be next. I mean, last week it was certain types of styrofoam containers, you know, the clamshells you do, you know, food to go in and mm-hmm. certain ones that, that were the most common that you just ordered without thinking about it. And you, you know, have in your storeroom, they're like, yeah, we're out of those. Like, when do you think they're coming back? Like ah, maybe a year or two. Jeepers. I mean, it's the stuff sitting on cargo ships and nobody knows. Yeah. Uh, chicken wings are in a shortage. What we used to pay 70 bucks a case for about 195 a case right now. <sighs> I pay a little over 50 cents a wing raw. So when we used to do wing on Wednesday, it was 10 wings for five bucks. Yeah. I, that's why I went in. Well, well, we had to raise the price because I cannot pay you to eat wings. I'll go broke in a hurry on that one. <laughs> right. My office will put a dent in that for sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you also, on top of all this, you handle a little place called TCU in their game day food, some of their game day food experience. Uh, that's obviously a lot to undertake. I assume you have a TCU plays Baylor tomorrow, so you're already in preparation for that. You have a whole team that does this. Well, How many hot dogs we and nachos? Well, we, I don't have the contract there anymore. Okay. So we did that for five seasons, okay, so and it was there. absolutely awesome. The uh, Sodexo is the food service company that handles the whole campus, Yeah, and they've got like a 1,000 campuses in the U.S. They're a big company. 
And they said, you know, we, we need a chef to handle the clubs and suites because these people expect more than our, you know, our regular campus food. And so for five seasons, we were doing that. Yeah, we would, we would go through, gosh, 1,200 pounds of brisket, 800 pounds of ribs, 700 pounds of sausage just on the barbecue station, maybe, maybe 1,800 hot dogs Jeepers. in a game. And 5,000 people are going to eat in a three-hour window. It was awesome and absolutely loved doing it. My catering team has never worked harder. It's it's one of those every every game when you were done, you just turn around and look like, did we really pull that off? Yeah. Right? It was an you didn't even know what time the game was going to start, mm-hmm. so you didn't know what your menu was going to be until Sunday the week before. So think about it: the games all play all on right. Saturday, right? On Sunday, the rankings come out. And then the TV stations start jockeying with each other for position. Like, okay, TCU's looking pretty good. Let's give them a primetime spot. You got a, mm-hmm. a three o'clock game or a six o'clock game. Great. That's a lunch and dinner menu. TCU loses and whoever we're playing is not in good position. You know what? We're going to give them an 11 o'clock game. That's, that's a breakfast game. Mm-hmm. And if you had an 11 o'clock kickoff, we open food service at 9 a.m. I need seven hours to get ready. So that's a 2 a.m. start in the kitchen for us. Fair to say you're not watching any games. You're always on point doing something. Where are you during the games? So what my goal was is I wanted to get by every single suite. There's uh, 32 of them and every one of the clubs and try to at least say hello to everybody, check on all the buffets before halftime. So usually I'd check my, you know, your Apple Apple Fitbit thing, and I'd, I'd look at it, and I'd, I'd usually get about nine miles in that day. You set just, to an alarm or something? You got to be concise, so you got to cut absolutely. a lot of conversation short, I'm sure. You're pretty you well How are you? Guy. Good to see yep. you. Nice. Mm-hmm. Hey, what's going oh, on? And turn go. around. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So it, it was an absolute blast, and I love doing it, but there was a point where, you know, with the new side of the stadium being built and a whole mm-hmm. nother set of clubs and then COVID hit just lots of different things happen. And Sodexo um, decided they, they were going to stop with the celebrity chef part. Yeah. You're a friend of Gary Patterson. Any thoughts on what's happened there? You don't have to go deep if you don't want, but I think, I think Gary is one of the best things that ever happened to TCU. He's mm-hmm. a class act as a man, as a coach. And I think they're going to miss him a lot. Winning as coach in TCU history. I can't say enough good things about, about Gary Patterson. Right. When we started, with with the team was the most exciting thing I've ever seen. They had the perfect season. I mean, that was unbelievable. So I I think they're going to miss him quite a bit. I have no nice. idea what the future has to has has for TCU, and I'm not one who really knows that much about college football. I mean, I, I love watching, yeah. But I don't have an in depth you know player analysis in my head, and I do know who all those guys are as far sure. as the coaching prospects. And that's be, like me. Yeah. yeah, it'll be interesting. But man, how do you replace a legend like that? For sure. One uh, hardest part about being a chef, John, besides pandemic, take that out of the equation. What's the hardest part about being you? The hours. Hours. Yeah, that's that's the one in, in, in school that they tell you first day. I mean, and you're, and you're welcome dinner to school. It's look, you are going to live the opposite hours of everybody else you know. Go ahead and kiss your Friday and Saturday nights goodbye. Every single holiday, you are not sitting at the table with your mom on Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. You are the one behind the buffet carving the ham. Mm-hmm. If you're okay with that, and you can stand up and work with your hands. They don't put windows in kitchens or chairs. If you can handle the labor and you can handle the hours, you're going to love this industry. But that's what eats most people up. And, you know, trying to raise two kids. My wife and I, when we first opened the restaurant, I mean, I was working 80 hours a week. But mm-hmm. once you start having kids, now how do you manage life? And how do, how do you make that work? It's it's very difficult. How's Melinda in the kitchen? Oh, she loves cooking. She, I take it back. She doesn't love to cook, but she's gotten very good. She says, I can, I can just throw a dinner together really quickly. And, you know, as long as the kids like it and I like it, I'm like, absolutely. 
we have an agreement. I don't walk in the kitchen and say, oh, you know what else I would do there? That's a horrible practice. So yeah, it's either <laughs> yeah. she's cooking or I'm cooking. But I, I will say if it's, if it's a Monday, we're closed. I'm like, hey, you want me to make dinner? There's always a yes. Every right. time I offer, I have more fun cooking at home now than I ever have. Usually like take one of the kids with me to Central Market and say, all right, pick out one thing you want tonight. What do you, I don't know. My, my son who's 10 would be like, what about that octopus? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Let's do that. And my daughter is more like, Ooh, an artichoke. That's beautiful. And so we always just try fun stuff. Oh, Cook, that's cool. Cooking with the kids is a blast. Yeah. One of the neat things you did on the screen, we have the, the black lives matter protests that were took, that took over the, the nation and the world. You were very uh, involved in that social media wise. And then in your restaurant wise, that was an experience. Can you Briefly tell us how that went for you. Man, that was a tough one. After we've been closed for 80-something days at Waters, we finally were allowed to reopen, and we were having our big reopening, you know, celebration and party. And said, okay, here we go. We're going to be open at 50%. And I was just glad to see our staff again. I mean, we finally got to hire people again. Yeah. And we were on, on top of the world, and customers were so excited, and they were coming in, and they are they are buying champagne and, you know, towers of oysters and crab claws. And, and then uh, – that night, right after we opened, we got a, a call from Sundance Security, and they said, look, tomorrow night may be a little rougher. There's a, there's some protests. This is a splinter group off of the regular protests that said that the protests have not gone far enough. They're going into restaurants, and it's it's getting very tense, so we're going to put a... We're going to put an officer at every restaurant. Mm -hmm. As soon as they start walking down the street, we're going to ask you to lock your door, lock everybody in. Once they pass through, unlock the door. We'll have a police officer there. And uh, we all got pretty scared. Yeah. I, I saw a lot of the online videos and the, the language, and it was it was some pretty salty stuff. So the next day, um, stood there. The customers were in there again. I mean, everybody's dressed to the nines. They're all celebratory. And then, uh, you know, the protesters came by. I locked the door and I thought everything was done. And then about 10 minutes later, I got a tap on the shoulder and it was, uh, hey, chef, they're, they're coming to the patio. You're going to need to get out there right now. I didn't even think about the protests coming around to the other side. Yeah. They have every right to the streets and sidewalks. That's their permit. And they have every right to do what they're doing. Mm -hmm. But it got very, very tense right off the bat. And when, when their leader kind of spotted me, I mean, he said, well, there's, there's a community leader right there. I need to talk to you and I need you to tell the mayor something for me. And I said, Hey, we're not against you, man. We're not, we're not here to fight. I'll tell you the mayor, anything you want, come on up here, man. We're, I just, I want to tell you, we're not, we're not trying to fight with you. We're not against your cause. I've actually gone out there and marched with y'all before, and we're hurting too. I, I'm not fighting with you, but we're trying to be in business. We just opened up, and we had a pretty good little moment, and they respectfully kind of walked on. And the next day, we made these signs, and uh, as they came around the corner, instead of a confrontation, we held up signs that said, like, yeah, George Floyd did not deserve to die. Stuff that we can all agree on no yep. matter what. Yeah. Black lives matter to us too. Signs like that and had a yep. case of cold waters because it was absolutely burning up as June mm -hmm. in Texas. And uh, they kind of, you know, gave some applause, a couple of high fives and went on down the street. And right. one of the next patios, they spent 45 minutes and a few people got arrested and they got pretty ugly, but. So we're in this it well, yep. supercharged polarized environment. Did you see any bump in business or bump or decline in from that? You know, I mean, everybody wants to, to paint, everybody else as a picture. Did you feel any of that or no? You just, I, I got to tell you, we, we had so many things going on. We had just gotten reopened. We were at 50% max. So I, mm -hmm. we were just looking at numbers like, man, is this, is this enough in sales to support the staff we got? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. every day was a, was a, a look at the numbers on paper and we can't sell anymore. 
if you're limited at 50%, your sales are limited to exactly the number of seats you got. We, yeah. we were focused on so many different things. I, I don't know if that had an effect on us or not. How many employees do you have right now? Uh, we're up to 238. We started at 265 before pre-pandemic and uh, we're getting, we're getting close. Oh, that's good. I wouldn't say we're fully staffed, but it, it, it feels pretty comfortable. I don't know a single restaurant owner and we know everybody in town. I don't know anybody that would call themselves 100% fully staffed. Everybody's mm-hmm. looking, mm-hmm. but um, you know, it's a, it's a tougher environment than Are it used to be. you happy that you're here? I mean, you, you, like Fort Worth, I, th- I think they handled it. This, we handled really well. I mean, did, do you this, feel the same way? This city has done an amazing job. Mm-hmm. Out of the top 25 cities in the U.S., we're 12 now. We're the only one out of the top 25 that didn't have wide-scale rioting, looting, burning. We obviously had issues. Yeah. But I think everybody handled it very respectfully on, on all sides. And we managed to get through it. It may not have been the easiest thing, but this city survived very, very well. Well done. So not to change track real quick, but as we wind up the interview, uh, I want to talk one more thing you do that's really, really interesting and fascinating. In 2018, you you ran 17 triathlons, including on top of that, the Dallas Marathon. That was a huge year for you and you were very public with it, which is really cool. We all followed this and uh, you've had some aches and pains lately and this is no longer something you're (laughs) able to maybe do for now. uh, I don't know if I'll be running them anymore. I, man, I, I love the, the triathlon game. Once you get hooked on that stuff, I mean, it was, it was the healthiest lifestyle and it, it is one of those, it became like almost like a spiritual thing. Like whenever I'm in, I need to make a decision whenever I really need to think about something or if, or if, if someone you love died, I'm like, you know what? I need to go run. I can clear, mm-hmm. I can clear everything out. Cause I don't take a phone with me. The only time that it's just me, if I go for a run or a bike ride or a swim and I was just racing all the time, having a blast with it. I mean, you know, decent enough in my age group, but I'm not exactly going to the Olympics. Let's not kid ourselves. But then uh, I, I tore an ACL, just a little nothing on a ski trip. Didn't even hurt. Just, you know, wow, my knee is totally loose. I can't make it stay straight. And sure enough, the doctor's like, yeah, you, uh, you, you tore your ACL. We're going to do an ACL reconstruction. And I got, you know, very determined. Like I've seen this happen to football players and yeah. in one year they are back. And I said, yeah, next year I'll be racing again. You strengthen the quad. That's it. So <laughs> three years later and uh, one part of my quad never, never turned back on. So it looks like I probably won't be running ever again. So mm. I got to figure out something else. You could bike, right? I can. I can't bike as well as I'd like swim? to. Still swim and bike? Sure. Why don't they just cut the running out of a uh, triathlon the, called biathlon or something? There, there, there actually is one that's called, a, there's an aqua bike, there's an aqua tot. There's, there's ways to combine two without doing all three, but there's like one of those a year. So it's, oh, it's, it's, not it's, that it's hard to get motivated for yeah. all those races. Yeah. Any regrets in your, in your life? I wish I hadn't skied that day. <laughs> just one. Just one day. I should have. Powder or like slushy day? What was it? I was pretty packed powder. Yeah. It wasn't a big deal. Just a little little pop. But mm. I, I think it really my, like my check engine light just came on. You yeah. Know? Says the guy who wakes up at 2 a.m. <laughs> serving, you know, thousands of pounds of brisket. Yeah, it was not a really a big deal for me, you know. So we, we took the liberty of contacting a few of your friends to find Uh-oh. out some information that may not be publicly known. <laughs> uh, we, have to, we have a question for you, but apparently on a hunting trip to Tajikistan a few years back, uh, Tajikistan. You, were, you were looking Tajikistan, you're looking for a Marco Polo to, to, to shoot. Um, apparently on the wall of the lodge, you'd notice something. Are you familiar with this story? Oh my God. I'm supposed I was, to ask you this, this was, what was on the wall so of the lodge. This was my bucket list trip. I mean- the most remote hunting place in the world. Tajikistan is next to Afghanistan in the Pamir Mountains. We're up at 
We're hunting at 18,000 feet. It takes three and a half days one way just to get here. It took me three years worth of paperwork to get to go do this amazing trip. And as soon as I get to this, it's, it's not even really, I wouldn't call it a lodge. It's like a yurt. Yeah. I mean, the most primitive building you can have in a place that's way, you know, days above tree line. And the first thing I see on the wall is a little sign thing from, from Joe Lankard at Joe T. Garcia's restaurant. I was like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah. Joe's got his stamp on this yurt <laughs> that it took me three and a half days to even get to. Like he had been there previously. Yeah, he had been there and he, shot one already. We he, heard that you had a sign like that in your uh, boarding school dorm room for uh, Warren <laughs> Prescott when he came up there that freshman year, too. <laughs> That's right. I, w- I went to boarding school in Byfield, Massachusetts, like 40 minutes north of Boston, and I was so far away from anybody I ever knew. And Were you a bad kid? No, I asked my parents if I could leave to try to get my grades up and get into a better college. You know, on so. the East Coast, boarding schools are kind of the way to go. I mean, it's only yeah. kind of here where people think of that as a, some type of punishment to be right. sent away. Other Correct. places, they're like the feeder schools for all the Ivy Leagues, That's right? That's it. It's a prep yeah. school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did. I met Warren Prescott. He was a couple years behind me and nice guy. And he ended up going to TCU. And um, I saw him a few years later, Valley Park in cars somewhere. I'm like, hey. He's like the only guy I have seen from the Governor's Academy in Byfield, Mass. <laughs> you know, in years. I'm like, what, what are you doing here? He's like, well, I went to TCU and started working at Renner Frog, then bought it, and now I'm parking cars. And he's made an incredible, incredibly successful business out of that. But I did look up a few, you know, old like pictures of him as a freshman on the tennis oh, yeah. team in, in Massachusetts to send to <laughs> he, his kids. Of course, yes. he may or may not be the source of that question. I cannot divulge <laughs> that. Um, uh, the, the last slide we have of you is you with Melinda and some guy named Dwight Yoakum. You've met some interesting cats in your days. Who are some of the greatest people you've been lucky enough to oh, serve, man. feed, I, been I, around? I, I never imagined when I decided I was going to cook for a living that I would get to do so much cool stuff and meet so many cool people. So yeah, we did a dinner with Dwight Yoakum in Napa Valley. Uh, I got to cook for Bradley Cooper one night for the premiere of American Sniper. That was cool. I've cooked who, for- who here looks closer to Bradley Cooper, would you say? Uh, are we- is anybody else in the room? <laughs> Fair enough. We'll leave it at that. Uh, Look at the hair. Cooked for a couple of presidents. Hair Hair or lack of hair? What are are we saying? No, continue on your comments. Sorry. I I got to cook for a couple of presidents, for George W., for Jimmy Carter, cooked for a lot of governors, a lot of politicians. In the White House, presidents? Uh, Nope. Different places. Okay. I've got to think that it's... It's got to be pretty gratifying to prepare a meal for somebody like that because it, it, it really it, is. Fun. It brings you closer. It's just different than kind of another service. It's more of a yeah. They really appreciate it, probably. You know, especially if it's good. You know, when they're not president anymore, you're, they're still president for life. You know what you call them, but there's there's a certain amount of of fun you can tell they they just have. And yeah. uh, when we were cooking for for George W, it was it was a small party in someone's house, and um, everyone in the in the kitchen is like, "Can we get pictures?" And I said, "Look." We are not part of this party. We are the hired help. We do our job the best we can. Congratulations, you're cooking for a president. That's pretty neat. Yeah. But that's that's not our role. This is their party. And uh, right after we played a dessert, I said, congratulations, everybody. That looks amazing. You just did a flawless service. This was perfect. Great job. And and he just walks in the kitchen and says, hey, everybody, get your phones out. Who wants to take pictures? <laughs> and then he said it in Spanish. And, I, and they all looked at me. I was like, go ahead. And he yeah. stayed for 10, 15 minutes and took Every picture with every camera, even pulled a couple of selfies out, was the nicest guy in the world. And you could tell every single person in the room just loved that. Nice. That's great. And you get a picture with a president. It doesn't matter which president. You got yeah. a picture with a president. How yeah. cool is that? Yeah. So those jo- kind of things have been amazing. And again, I never thought I would ever get to do this kind of stuff just because I started cooking. I got invited to go fly with the Thunderbirds in an F-16. I mean, some really cool stuff. Get sick at all? 
that was my one goal because I, I got a bunch of buddies who've been fighter pilots and they're like, no, don't don't throw up and mm-hmm. you know don't mess your pants and yeah don't pass, don't pass out. out. Yeah, those were my three goals and yeah. I, I I made it through all three. We pulled oh, nine G's. Mm-hmm. I was I was Oof. close to passing out, but I didn't quite. Nice. Well, John, you've lived an amazing and extraordinary life. You've done some really great stuff, especially for this town of Fort Worth. I'm not dying yet. And now, you're not dying. I'm just giving you. Just not running anymore. You, and the best part about it is you're you're a, you're a nice guy. You're one of the good guys. We appreciate that about you. People that know you know this to be true. So thank you for being a good guy and, and a and a advocate for the city of Fort Worth. So congrats on all the success. It's deserved, and you do a wonderful job. Before we go, uh, we would like to ask our guests, besides wife, kids, familial affairs, what's the best day of your whole life? Oh, man. Best day? All right. getting I got to run the Kona Ironman in Hawaii. That was mm. the coolest thing. It's the world championships, and I am not fast enough to qualify for that race, mm-hmm. but I got invited to raise money for the Leukemia Lympho- Lymphoma Society on their team, and to get to go, it's like getting to go throw a pitch in the world series or yeah. throw, throw a pass, you know, yeah. in the Super Bowl. It, this was the big one. And they let some average age grouper like me do it. Now, hardest day also took me over 14 hours to finish it, but absolutely the coolest day I can think of. That might've been why it's the best too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Just thanks a ton. Life experience that you can't, you can't really explain to someone who hadn't, hadn't done something like that. You know, biggest challenge ever. Yeah. Well done, John. Thanks Thank for you. joining Thanks, us. John.